Imagine this. You're a young cook. You spent thousands of dollars to attend a fine culinary school, spending one to three years studying food theory, nutrition, food safety, baking theory, food costing, wine tasting, management, product knowledge, and many, many, many other courses while doing tons of labs where you learn techniques and lessons, and then you cook your little heart out under the watchful eye of the chef instructor. It's a full-time deal, and you're loving every minute of it. It's like what you wanted to do. But you're also chomping at the bit to get out there into the real world to show them what you've got. Like, go get them, tiger. There are many avenues to explore. You, you can work in catering. You can be a personal chef. You can work in research and development. You can work in banquet halls or corporate food services like Aramark or Sodexo. You can work in a grocery store kitchen or upscale retirement communities or any other kind of long-term care facilities. Some students go right into food distribution and sales or teach or become YouTubers <laughs> or other digital creators. There's casinos, hotels, sports and entertainment venues, and other large quantity cooking spaces. You, you can work in a place that makes you know gourmet takeaway meals or even open up a cozy coffee shop or bakery that has a cute Wi-Fi password like touch our buns 24. <laughs> but you want none of those things. You want to work in restaurants. You're a glutton for punishment. You've watched Burnt, Boiling Point, and The Menu. You're a fan of Hell's Kitchen. Who isn't? You're intoxicated by the buzz and the hum of service, the, the pressure, the tension, the release, the attention to detail, and the challenge you get in performing at a high level under duress. Bring that chisel on. So you decide you're going to get out there and make a name for yourself. You put your resume out, and eventually you get a call from a top restaurant in the city. They like the cut of your jib. And they want to get you in for an interview. Oh, one last thing. They say, bring your knives. You're so excited and you celebrate by, I don't know, <laughs> popping some edibles and binge on old Iron Chef, uh, Iron Chef episodes until you doze off and dream of beating Paul Bocuse in a lightsaber fight on a pulled sugar statue of Ratatouille the Rat. It's epic. It's awesome. The next day, you grab your knife roll, your Wustoffs, all honed and sharpened, and you e-scooter your way to the fine dining restaurant across town. You remember the instructions the, the sous chef gave you. Go to the back entrance only. Don't come through the front. You go around through the sketch alleyway, because they're always sketch <laughs> alleyways. And you know you've got the right door because the area reeks of cigarette butts, rotting food, and used grease. Also, milk crates everywhere. That's like the biggest giveaway. You tentatively slip into the open doorway, and you find yourself in a prep area slash linen room slash storage area slash pantry. The room smells of stocks and socks <laughs> and bones roasting and all that kind of fun stuff. You find a cook peeling potatoes and timidly ask her where the sous chef is. She eyes you up and down, pauses, and then saunters off. A minute later, she returns with the sous chef. He's youngish and looks nothing like the hotties on the bear. <laughs> but you're, you're not here for tomfoolery. You're here to start your Michelin star-studded career. 
you can tell he's a bit of a rush. I mean, we all are. And so he goes all over the basics and he gives you a copy of the menu to look over. He asks you a few questions, namely about your availability and your experience and what you're looking to get out of the job, if you get it. You nervously answer. And after a few minutes, he asks if you're ready to go. You ready to go? You say, sure. Not really sure what that means. He introduces you to that prep cook and asks her to show you to the change room so that you can get into whites. You get changed and show up with your knife roll in hand. The prep cook gets you set up with a cutting board and area to work. You're given a list of items to prep. Is this a test of some sorts, you ask yourself? The sous chef returns and tells you that dinner service will be starting in a few hours. And you may, oh my gosh, you may be asked to help out during the rush. It may not be cooking on the line per se, but who knows? Maybe the spirit of Augusta Scoffier will enter the chef and allow you to cook an item. It's really up to the culinary gods. You ask, oh, I, I wasn't expecting to start a shift already. Uh, okay, cool. What's the pay? I, we, we never discussed this. He chuckles and, say, and says, oh, this is a trial shift. I thought you knew that already. It's standard. You know, you check us out. We check you out. It's like a blind date. Then we can decide if we want to hire you. You stand there momentarily stunned. Is this how it works? Is this legal? Should I say something? No, 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 no. They, they might think I'm, I'm a princess. But I really want this job. But I, I wasn't expecting to work tonight, especially for free. I, I, but I don't want to piss them off by being difficult. I, I, I don't want to rock the boat. But what if I work tonight and they don't hire me? Like, I, I just feel stupid. You have all these thoughts flying around your head. The sous chef and prep cook are just looking at you. Your palms are sweaty. Mom's spaghetti. What do you do? Do you stay or do you go? The practice of doing trial shifts in restaurants has been around for a long time. It's something that started in Europe. It has a name too, staging. It comes from the French word stagiaire, which I probably butchered, but... <laughs> Sorry. That's what 13 years of French schooling here in Canada will do. Can't even pronounce one word. Anyway, uh, stagiaire is a, it's a French word that means trainee, apprentice, or intern. It's an unpaid internship a cook takes to expose themselves to new techniques. Before the advent of culinary schools, this was the most common way to learn things as another form of education. To this day, it's not uncommon for even established chefs to go elsewhere to learn from another chef to see how they operate the kitchen while learning some new things themselves. And yes, they do it while unpaid. They kind of think of it as a holiday. Most chefs will wax poetically about their stages, how powerful and useful and even instrumental in their own growth and development. They will then use that same model in their own kitchens and restaurants to gauge potential hires and to give cooks from other restaurants a shot to learn while they quote-unquote help out. It's a practice that's been, I feel, has been waning over the last few decades, but it's still in operation. There are chefs now who themselves have staged who are speaking out against it. 
But like I said, it's still happening. Proponents of staging say that it's used to transfer knowledge and passion. It's used to create networking connections. It's used to become a stronger cook and chef. It's even been the catalyst to change the very trajectory of cooking careers and lives. And it's also illegal. <laughs> in Canada and in the United States, labor laws look down at staging, or they don't look at it favorably. It's considered wage theft, amongst other things. There are rules and regulations about what internships are and aren't. For example, if you're paying to go to a school and internship is part of the curriculum, then unpaid internships are legal. They're fine. But even then, at least here in Ontario at least, there are rules around that. Like it can't be taking a job away from someone else it, or it has to be training and learning only. Uh, you're limited also to a certain amount of hours a week that you can be interning and so on. But when it comes to the time-honored tradition of staging, what labor boards worry about is the rampant abuse and exploitation that has happened in the past and which can still happen today. Belligerent chefs with wandering hands are still around. Sexism too. All sorts of bullshit abounds in some kitchens in some way. That stuff is understandably frowned upon. I mean, when I was in the industry, doing a one-day trial shift was common, very common. And I had done a few. But there are cooks who spend weeks and months and even longer working as unpaid labor in restaurants. And listen, we're not talking, when I'm talking about restaurants, I'm not talking about Boston pizza necessarily, guys. We're talking about fine dining restaurants. So what keeps cooks from opening their mouths to voice their opposition to this practice? Because there are a lot of cooks who aren't crazy about doing this either. There's two things. One, the dangling carrot of having an esteemed chef and or restaurant on your CV. The price to pay for that honor is that you don't get paid. It's something I've seen countless times. And also realize, by the way, that for many stages, you're doing the basics. Like you're picking herbs and sweeping up and you're peeling vegetables. You may get on the line, but for the most part, you're just doing the schlubby work. The second reason why cooks don't speak out against staging and doing this unpaid work is the culture of compliance. You see, if you're the young cook in the opening story, the fear is that if you say something, you could get easily blacklisted. You see, chefs talk. Chefs know each other. They can put someone on blast easily and make your life hard, unless you get out of the restaurant industry entirely and try one of those other culinary paths I mentioned earlier. But if you want to be in the fine dining restaurant game, in many ways, you got to play along. At least that's what they'll tell you. That's the unspoken sort of contract. And to play means conforming, not standing out, towing the line. And that can be harmful. So let's take a super quick dive into this conformity and why we do it. Imagine being in a small room with a group of strangers. You've been asked to do a vision experiment. Seated in a room with other participants, you are shown 
a line segment and then asked to choose the matching line from a group of three other line segments of different lengths. The person running the test asks each participant individually to select the matching line segment. Sometimes everyone in the group chooses the correct line, but occasionally the other participants unanimously state that a different line is actually the correct match. So what do you do when the experimenter asks you which line is the right match? Do you go with your initial response or do you choose to conform to the rest of the group even if you know they're wrong? This was an actual test. It's the famous Solomon Ash psychological conformity experiment from the 1950s and which has been replicated many times since. Here's the TLDR on this. In every group, there was one naive test subject. That is, they had no idea what was going on. The rest of the people in the group were in on the experiment. Oh, So these people who were in on it would start answering the questions about the lines correctly at first. But then as the test continued on, they started to change the answers according to what the experimenters instructed them to say ahead of time. So it was, they were in on it. It was all collusion. So they purposely stated the wrong answers to see what the test subject would do, the naive test subject. And that was the whole point of that experiment. And the results were astonishing. After all the results were in, they showed at one point, 75% of the test subjects conformed with the group, even though they had the right answer. They knew they had the right answer. Like, how wild is that? And overall, one third of all test subjects conformed to what the rest of the group said, even though the rest of the group was clearly wrong. Clearly wrong. So why would those test subjects knowingly answer incorrectly? People, they, they spoke to those test subjects afterwards, and they offered a few reasons why they went with the wrong crowd, so to speak. One, they feared ridicule in front of others. Another, they felt, you know, they feared conflict with others. And thirdly, most interestingly, is, what, is that they felt that the others must be smarter than them. Like they must somehow have it wrong. It's almost like being gaslit by the group. Now, what was also tested, and this is important to state, that conformity increased when, and there's three different ways that conformity increased. One, when there were more people present, right? So it's like more peer pressure. Secondly, when the tasks were more difficult, as we tend to look towards others for information on how to respond, especially when we're not 100% sure. And thirdly, when the others are of a higher social status, when people view the others in the group as more powerful or influential or knowledgeable than themselves, they're more likely to go along with the group. I mean, makes sense. So think about it. When you have a large group with many in place of authority and who are more knowledgeable and influential, at least in your perception, you're more likely to conform. And so in the case of our young cook, she's in this large group, which is the chef or culinary community, with cooks who are more seasoned than her and who are in a position above her. So of course, there is a greater chance that she will conform to the idea of staging. And 
look, there are other reasons why why people conform, and it gets it goes down a rabbit hole. But um, and they can be useful and and helpful. But there are times when we comply because we fear reprisal and rejection. And in this case, our hapless young cook probably felt trapped in a corner. Of course, she has every right to pack up her knives and leave. She has a choice. We all have a choice when we're in a position to either conform or risk being ostracized or abandoned or or looking foolish or whatever it is that we fear. But of course, change often happens when we break the conformity chain. And at some point, someone is brave enough to look around them and say, this ain't for me, man. This ain't it. This won't do. And we have seen this with the culinary scene, at least here in Ontario. Many chefs have been breaking the cycle of toxic work environments, of low pay and ridiculous hours. It's a small group, but inroads are being made to more positive kitchen cultures happening. And of course, that can attract more cooks. It's starting to happen. It's been happening for about the five, 10 years, I think, but it is happening. And this brings me to some questions to challenge you in how it is that you live your life. Who are you conforming to? That is, who are the people that you want to hang around with and be with? Are they people that you want to be emulating? Are they as successful as you want to be? If you continue this way with these people, where will you be in five years? Are you marking time and just existing? Or are you stepping into what lights you up? In conforming, are you settling? Or do you have a clear direction and worthwhile purpose in your life? I, I, I know these are heavy questions. You weren't expecting this. But when you catch yourself giving the wrong answer, when you know the true answer, in however way you want to accept that, just like in Ash's experiment, what part of you are, are you feeding? Are you feeding the fearful part or the expansive part? It takes courage to buck the trend, but the road less traveled is like that because it's harder. Becomes, but, but it comes with, with, with more rewards. So again, what will you do? Pack up your knives or stay and grind away to the beat of someone else's drum? Now, what do I think of staging? Not that you ask, but too bad, too sad. <laughs> it's my podcast. Um, I think it can be valuable to see how others do things, but I still feel there needs to be compensation of sorts. I would at the very least offer a wage to those who are staging. Maybe not a full rate of the other cooks, but give them some kind of financial compensation and at least a full meal. I don't mean a staff meal, like a proper meal. <laughs> From the restaurant like i like for me it'd be let's make it legal make it above board keep it simple you know if a chef wants to visit a colleague and observe and chip in for fun that's on them but anyone else who's trying out who wants to learn gets a wage for the day at least to me and i think in terms of staging it should there should be some sort of limit on that maybe a day or two a day max and i'm talking about if you want to work for someone i mean if you're a chef and you can't figure out if someone is a match for your kitchen within 10 minutes of watching them let alone two full shifts then you're in trouble my friend like you got to get your act together
And that may piss off some chefs, but I guarantee those are the ones who benefit the most from a revolving door of free labor under the guise of clout and getting good exposure, quote unquote. I mean, when it comes to exposure, ask any artist, musician, whatever, about how many times they're pitched good exposure versus actually getting paid. And you'll see, it's rampant. I mean, you can't pay your, your, your credit card bill or your rent with exposure or a fancy name on your resume. It just doesn't work that way. But we're still kind of in that mindset of, of conforming. It's, it's, it's always been done that way, which is a horrible reason to keep doing something. We've always done it that way. Okay, there's no room for innovation. There's no room for creativity. There's no room for, for building and, and, and again, breaking the chain and, and going on that road less traveled. That's where the good stuff is. That's where the fun stuff is. It's not always easy. But when you have, like all, and, and speaking of art, any sort of um, phase of art, any sort of era has been a reaction to the one before it. And so in terms of, let's say, with the chef culture, toxic culture, there needs to be that, that rebound. And unfortunately, it's been around for so long that it's just become set. But there are, like I said earlier, there are people who are breaking it. And I think it's really important that we start to see that. And the people that bitch and moan and whine about it, again, are the ones who benefit. Or it's the idea, well, I did it and I, can't, I turned out fine. And I, have you? <laughs> Maybe culinarily. But why not adapt and change and be, be a lamplighter ahead and make things just different so that we can create, like the, the world has changed dramatically since like I was an apprentice. If I ran a restaurant now, it'd be very different than how I experienced it. And yes, I got good lessons and all that, but things can improve, right? And, and we don't have to conform and comply. I mean, comply to the... Uh, <laughs> To the you know when, when the health inspector comes in you got to make sure you comply that's a that's a that's a useful and helpful compliance <laughs> but you know you don't want your 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 people getting sick but again in the end when it comes to whether it's i mean just in general people please follow your heart and your gut even if it means that you're not with the cool set you have got your own version of cool and that's what matters most it's what matters in here it it matters where your North Star is, so to speak. That is what you need to follow. You don't have to follow some unwritten code of conduct that's, frankly, to me, is a bit dated. That's my two cents, so take it or leave it. Anyway, and speaking of cool, what would be mega cool of you, you hepcat you, is to share or put up a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to this rad pod. It helps open it up to more people. And also, don't miss up a chance to check out my website, www.therealpaulsilva.com, to find out more about what I do as a coach to help you reach greater heights in your life. That would be groovy. And now, with that, kitchen's closed. Now, scram. Scram.